Hallelujah. Well, good morning, church. Uh, there's a, a story in Acts 3 where there's a guy who is unable to walk. And uh, after Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, brings healing, it says that the man went walking and leaping and praising God. And uh, we had a little bit of walking and leaping and, and praising earlier. And, and I want to just explain that maybe a little bit if you're a little bit newer, because if you would have asked that guy, hey, why are you jumping? Why are you dancing? He wouldn't have said, because I'm Pentecostal. He wouldn't have said, because that's what my rabbi told me I should do. He would have told you, because I didn't used to be able to walk, and now I can walk. And there's something about a radical praise and excitement in God's spirit that only comes when you've been changed by his love. And so if you think we are crazy, we are, but it's because we're crazy about him, okay? And so I just wanted to explain that a little bit here, but um, hey, listen, we're really glad that you're here. Today's a good day, amen? Uh, my name is Joey, and my beautiful wife, Kelly, and I, we get the absolute joy uh, of pastoring this incredible church, and uh, we, we just feel like, honestly, we're along for the ride with everybody else. We're just servants of King Jesus, and we're so excited to, to run for the gospel with all of you. Uh, is anybody ready to hear the word this morning? All right, come on. Here we go. So we're, we're in the book of Genesis. You guys know this if you've been with us. Uh, open up to Genesis 18, verse 20. We've been in a series on Abraham and Sarah. We've been talking about the story of God. And uh, what we're doing is we're going through the great stories of the Bible one step at a time, one one part at a time. And we've been looking at this, this journey where God calls this elderly man, this elderly woman, and he tells them they're going to be so blessed, he's going to use them to bless nations, that their descendants are going to change the world, and they don't have any kids. He tells them he's going to give land the size of a nation, and they're desert wanderers who don't even own a patch of grass. And you see, this is how the promise of God works. He speaks into things that are not, but then he brings them to pass. So, so here in this story today, God shows up in human form with two visitors. Abraham is 99 years old. Do we have any 99-year-olds who would like to have kids in this church? Anybody got that Abraham anointing? Come on, in Jesus' name. I always joke, we're trying to grow this church organically here, okay? We got the most organic church growth strategy here. It's awesome. It's great. So we have Abraham and Sarah. They are 99 and 89, respectively. Yahweh shows up in human form with two angelic messengers, and he tells them, by this time next year, you're going to have a child. Now, let's put that on pause for a second, because we're going to we're going to talk about the birth of Isaac next week. What happens in the meantime is God has this conversation with Abraham where he says that he's going to bring judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. How many of you have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay. Famously like the worst places ever. And uh, we see here, this is a key part of Abraham's story. So we're going to read uh, starting in verse 20 says, then Yahweh said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. So the men, this is the two angels in human form, they turned from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before Yahweh. 
Abraham stepped stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? Yahweh said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And this, this keeps happening here. So verse 29 says, then he spoke to him again, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30. Has anybody ever bargained with God before? Then he said, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, right? So he's like, hey, I'm already in this thing. Suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When Yahweh had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. All right, so this is kind of like an intense court scene here. I don't know about you if you've ever had to stand before a judge before. Maybe don't raise your hand. Uh, I have, okay, uh, in traffic court, uh, which will come as no surprise to anybody who knows me. Uh, it was when I was 17, and because I was under 18, and it was a certain amount well, we won't talk about over the speed limit, I had to pay my ticket in person, um, and the judge looks down on me as yet another troubled youth of Mahoning County, and uh, it, was, it was not great. We got some law enforcement here, Tyrone, Gary, I'm sorry. Listen, I'm working on it. Um, my wife, Kelly, over here, on the other hand, she's the kind of person that doesn't get pulled over. Are any of you guys like that out there? Okay. A few of you guys, Tyrone, can we get them a few tickets just to even things out a little bit? Can we make that happen? Now, listen, my wife, she's one of these people that, like, she only got pulled over one time, and you know what it was for? Going too slow in the left lane, okay? This is a true story. Listen, I asked, listen, I talked to Kelly about this before. She agreed that we could talk about this all together here. She's cool with it. Um, But you see, this is what marriage is. The Lord brought us together, and if you average us out, we drive somewhere around the speed limit. So... Uh, that's, that's the beauty of, of marriage and two people being one. And so, um, yeah, yes. Thank you for coming to my marriage seminar. Okay. Um, all right. So, so Sodom and Gomorrah are basically before a judge here, and this is not traffic court. This is literal fire and brimstone that's about to happen. So we have three parties here. Number one, we have the guilty. This is Sodom and Gomorrah. They're the guilty ones. Number two, we have the judge, who Abraham here calls the judge of all the earth. And the third group of people here, the third category, is Abraham, who's the priest. He's acting on defense of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's talk about these here real quick. Uh, so we have, we have the guilty. Now, in verse 20, Yahweh says that he's heard the outcry from Sodom. Now, the word outcry here, this is not just like somebody who's crying out for something This is actually the legal term for somebody who's crying out when there's been an injustice. 
Now, when we look at the city of Sodom, if we were to turn the page in our Bibles to Genesis 19, we see this horrific sexual sin that's about to happen uh, in the family of Lot. We haven't had time to talk about Lot at all in this series. This is Abraham's nephew. We know that this Sodom is full of horrific sexual sin, and if you want to know where a generation stands before God, you can see how they feel about sex. Now, this is something that the American church doesn't like to confront or talk about a whole lot, but this is one of the sins of Sodom. We also see in ex, uh, sorry, Ezekiel 36, God says, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, comfortable security, but they didn't support the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable acts before me. So a couple things here when it comes to sin. There's some camps in the Christian world that feel like sin is this, it's this personal thing, right? That, if, that if, you, if you do all the right things and you don't do these certain bad things right, you're, you're pure and you're humble, then you're good to go. And, and it doesn't really matter so much what happens out there in society. It doesn't really matter if other people are struggling. If I have my personal thing with the Lord, then I'm holy, now, there's other, other camps in the Christian world that say, you know what, don't worry about all that sexual purity stuff. What really matters is, is taking care of the poor and the needy. And we see here that righteousness, holiness, according to the Word of God, is both an individual thing and it's a social thing. That holiness before God is about your own personal purity and it's about making sure your neighbor's not hungry. That's what holiness is. That's what righteousness is. And it seems like Sodom has failed on both accounts. They're messed up everywhere. They're messed up as individuals. They're messed up as a society. And Yahweh here is judging the outcry. He's he's judging what is happening in this city because he's looking to to deal with it. So let's, let's talk about the judge here. Abraham here calls the Lord the judge of all the earth. Now, now, we get a little bit uncomfortable with this idea of, of God being a judge, but I want to make the case to you this morning that God being the judge of all the earth is actually really good news. And I'd like to propose to you that a God that is uncaring about the outcry is actually not a good God. You see, what God does is He gives us His good law, with good commands, with good instructions. And the problem is we resist God's law, not because God's law is not good, but because our hearts have been hardened by sin. And so we see God's law as this, these hard commands. It's just these list of rules, and and we don't really want to have to do all of that, and we get uncomfortable with that. But you see, God's law, it leads to life. It leads to goodness. And what happens when we reject God's law is that there is outcry, that sin always destroys. Sin always corrupts. It, it empties us. It hollows us. And not only destroys our own walk with the Lord, but it impacts the people around us negatively. Now, God, as judge of all the earth, is committed to removing from his world everything that causes outcry. Everything that hinders his good and loving and wise way for his world. And you see, you and I, we actually understand this intuitively. 
That if there's something you care about, whether it's your home or your car or much more important things like your family, right, that if something happens to them, there's an anger and a frustration that rises up inside of you, not because you don't love that person, but uh, precisely because you love that person, right? In the same way, God is against sin, not because he hates you, but because he loves you. God is against the things in his world that bring destruction, that bring pain, because he's committed to the whole world being filled with his mercy and love. The Bible says that that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, and that God wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And so so you can see here, what, what is God to do? Because on one hand, God is gracious. God is compassionate. God wants the whole world to be saved. But on the other hand, there's outcry. On the other hand, there's injustice. And so God's, God's scoping out what's going on here. And so here, here comes Abraham into this here, who's our, kind of our third character in the story. Verse 23 says, Abraham stepped forward and said. So there's a sense that, that Abraham here, he's going to bat for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to bat for these people. And, and this is actually, it seems like to us, like what's this have to do with Isaac and, and what's this have to do with Abraham and his family and his calling? And the thing is, it actually has everything to do with it because Abraham's family, they're called to be the ones who God blesses and through them, the whole world is blessed. So the blessing that's on Abraham is to move through Abraham and his family to reach the rest of the world. It actually says here a few verses earlier before our main passage, verse 17 and 18, Yahweh said, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. So you see, what's happening in this story is Abraham is actually doing the family business. It's his job not only to make sure his family's taken care of, but actually through him, all families on the earth are going to be blessed, that through him, all nations on earth are going to be blessed. And you see, this is part of what it means to be the people of God. It's that we are priests, we are ambassadors, that we represent God to the world, and we represent the world back to God. And so Abraham here, he's engaged in what's called intercession, Kind of a fancy word that that basically means you're standing in the gap for somebody else. It's a specific kind of prayer that's not about for you and your needs. It's actually the kind of prayer that's that's doing battle for somebody else who's in need. In the people of God, there's this sense that, yes, the world is wicked, but God is committed to reaching this world. That the world, like Sodom, is full of sin, but guess what? God really loves sinners. And so Abraham here, he's, he's involved in this priestly calling to, to be God's light and God's grace to this wicked city. So here we have this, this dialogue. And Abraham here, he says, God, you, you wouldn't really destroy this city if there were some righteous people in it, would you? And so what, what is Abraham doing here? He's, he's holding God to his promises of grace and mercy. He's holding God to his promises of compassionate love. We've talked in our house churches about how God is slow to anger. And so what we see here is this debate 
between Abraham and God. And, and here's why this is fascinating, and here's what I really want to talk to you about this morning. In ancient times, people didn't have so much of this sort of individualistic sense of identity that, you know, my family, they're crazy, and my community's crazy, but like, you know, I'm good, I'm doing my own thing. In that time, what your community did affected you. And it was a much more tribal, a much more communal understanding of the self and of the identity. There's actually one story in the book of Joshua where one guy's sin caused the whole Israelite army to lose the battle. Now, to us, that sounds a little bit unfair, right? How could, how could one guy mess it up for everybody? And so there's a sense in the Bible that like, hey, we have to police ourselves here because, because your actions affect me. There's a sense that like we're all in this thing together, and there's a sense of somebody else's impact of sin could negatively hurt the rest of the community. Now, that's kind of weird. That's kind of strange to us. But I want you to notice what Abraham does here. Abraham here, he doesn't say, actually, God, forget all that kind of stuff. Maybe just take a few righteous people out, and it'll be fine. What Abraham actually says is, what if it works the other way, too? That if instead of a few sinners corrupting and staining the whole community, what if a few righteous people could save a whole wicked city? What if, the, what if a handful of righteous people could make a difference that in your sight, God, you would actually spare and forgive the entire city because 50 people are righteous? Now, we don't know how big Sodom is. We don't know how big Gomorrah is. Probably hundreds at least, if not thousands, maybe tens of thousands. And Abraham's like, look, give me, give me a few dozen righteous people, and if that's enough, would you forgive everybody? And the crazy thing about this story is that God says yes. Now, think about this here. God will forgive sinners because of somebody else's righteousness. That's kind of weird, right? That God would forgive not only like a one-to-one, -one, not like, Abraham, if you give me one righteous person for every wicked person, then maybe that'll just like tip the scale a little bit. Abraham's like, how about 50? Sure. 45? Sure. 40? All right, let's keep going. And I want you to understand something here because this is a theme that actually runs through the whole Bible, and it's that the righteousness of somebody else can save a wicked majority of people. A few righteous people in God's eyes that he values that so much, he cherishes that so much, that he's, his heart is so full of grace and mercy and compassion that a few righteous people on one side of the scale outweighs a multitude of sinners. Now imagine this if you're one of these wild, crazy people in Sodom, that you can be saved because of the righteousness of somebody else that a few righteous people can save sinful many people. A wicked crowd, a wicked city, multiple wicked cities, that, that all God wants in his heart, that he's slow to anger, he's, he's abounding in faithful love, he's gracious, he's compassionate, and God would rather spare the whole thing for 10 righteous people. Now what we see in this story is that it, 
actually doesn't have a good ending. I don't have time to read it to you. Turns out there wasn't even ten. And God takes Lot and his family out, and there's the famous fire and brimstone. And the thing about this story is it leaves you unsatisfied. And here's why. Here's why it leaves me unsatisfied. Because when, when Abraham got to 10, God didn't say, that's the limit. In fact, the reason we have stopped at 10 is because Abraham stopped asking at 10. Now, when I read this, I'm a kind of curious person. I was the annoying kid that was always asking why. I needed to know how things worked. My question is, what would have happened if Abraham said, God, will you spare it for five? God, will you spare it for three? The question is like, how, how far is God's grace and mercy willing to go? Could, could Abraham have said, God, will you spare it for one? Now, I'd like to propose to you this morning that one actually is the answer, and here's why. When you read through the rest of the Old Testament, it starts to feel like everybody is Sodom and Gomorrah. If you ever read through the Bible and feel like, why is nobody getting it right? You're in good company. Actually, the, the verse in Ezekiel that I read earlier, God calls Israel Sodom's sister. And they're supposed to be the Abraham people. They're supposed to be the set-apart people. And so as you read the pages of the Old Testament, you begin to realize this isn't a Sodom and Gomorrah problem. This is a human problem. That God begins to look out on the whole world and it says, is there anyone righteous? And so across the Old Testament, this story from Sodom and Gomorrah lingers over the pages. That will God rescue a group of people for a righteous remnant? That will there be a righteous remnant that stands against the culture of sin? Will there be a righteous remnant that is set apart? Will there be a righteous remnant that's enough for God to forgive a city, to forgive a nation? Is there a righteous remnant? Is there anyone set apart from sin? Is there anyone set apart as holy unto the Lord? And the question that, that lingers over the Old Testament is like, how many righteous people is enough to save us? Right? Will there, will there be a righteous person that will be righteous enough on our behalf for God to forgive us? Will there be a remnant that's holy? Will there be a remnant that's set apart? And because they're righteous, God will forgive us. Because God said he would do it. He said, he said that if, if there's enough of a righteous remnant, he would forgive many. The question is, how few is enough? How much righteousness is enough? Where's the number? Well, we see as the Bible progresses is that it doesn't seem like there's any righteous remnant. And it seems like God would forgive not for 50 or 20 or 10. It seems like God would forgive for one, and here's why. Isaiah 53, some of you know this, tells a, a story about God's suffering servant about this servant who will come and he will be righteous on our behalf. He will be holy on our behalf. Here's what it says. You see it on the screen. 
After his anguish, this is God's servant, he will see the light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Notice this here. He says, with my one servant, I will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. That God is saying he looks out on the sin, not of Sodom, not just of Israel, but the sin of the whole globe. And he says, there's going to be one. There's going to be a servant. And I will forgive the many. I will justify many because of the righteousness of one. Now, who is that one? Jesus. You guys know this. You've been hearing me preach. All roads lead to Jesus. When Jesus talked about the Hebrew Bible, he says, the whole thing is all about me. And when you read the New Testament, you get the sense that the one has come. The righteous one has come. And the good news of the gospel and the good news of my story is that it doesn't end like Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't end with fire and brimstone. And it's not because Joey turned things around. It's because one was found. One was found who was worthy. One was found who was righteous. One was found who was holy. And God says, if I can find one, I'll forgive the whole world. You see, every other religion on the planet, it's an individualistic thing that you stand before the judge of all the earth. Every other belief system, you got to stand before the judge. And, and, and people think, well, you know, God kind of knows my heart. He knows that I fail. He kind of gets it. Or maybe he'll put all my good on one side, all my bad on the other side. And you see the gospel's totally different because the gospel's not about your good, but Jesus is good on your behalf. It's the gospel, it's, it's totally different. In the gospel, we're all lumped into this one group together, and we're all wicked together. And on the scales of God's justice, you have all the weight of all my sin, all the weight of all your sin, all the weight of all the world's sin. And on the other side is Christ alone and his righteousness. And God said it's more than enough. And now in Jesus Christ, God has washed the sin of the whole world because he found one. Here's what Romans 5 says. So then, as through one trespass, he's talking about Adam's sin here in the garden. Through Adam's trespass, there's condemnation for everyone. So also, through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as though one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Listen, if you think God being willing to forgive a city because of 10 righteous people is good, let me tell you about the gospel. God looks out on the whole world and he's like, just give me one. And guess what? We couldn't even provide one. So he came himself. He said, I'll be, I'll be the one. And listen, if, if you hear this gospel of grace and you think it's a license to sin, you've misunderstood the gospel. That's a false gospel. If anything, the gospel of grace changes you so much, you don't want to sin anymore. 
And holiness is not this, this standard that you have to meet because God's beating you over the head with the law. Grace changes you from the heart. And you change not because you have to, but because you want to. And holiness comes out of grace. Justice comes out of mercy. Then in the unbelievable grace of God, our hearts are changed, and that's why, we, that's why we live holy. Not because we're trying to prove something, not because we're trying to be accepted, but because when I wasn't holy, He accepted me already. That's where, the, that's where holiness comes from. I'm not trying to earn anything. I'm simply walking in what Jesus already did on my behalf. But you see, my friend, one day when you stand before the judge, one day you're going to stand. Abraham called him the judge of all the earth. Friends, on that day, he doesn't need to look at your record. He doesn't need to add up your good days and your bad days. All he's going to do is look at one. He's going to look at that righteous one. And so the, the Bible here presents two options. You're either dead in Adam or alive in Christ. It was our, our scripture reading that Valentina read. In fact, can we, can we put that back up there, Dan? Is that okay? Let me reread this to you. The first few verses here from Romans 4. The scripture tells us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they've earned, right? So when you, when you get your paycheck every week, your boss isn't like, hey, this is a nice gift I'm giving you. You're like, no, I earned that, right? That's, that's what you're owed because of your work. But you see, Paul says here, God's righteousness is not like a paycheck for your work. Here's what it says. People are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. What joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven whose sins are put out of sight, what joy for those whose record Yahweh has cleared of sin. See, this, this is why the gospel is radically different, because it's not about you working for it. It's a gift. It's that God justifies the ungodly. He makes sinners righteous. He welcomes the people of Sodom into his family. And you see, this is, this is the thing here. This isn't just, well, you know, Sodom was crazy, or when you read the Old Testament, Israel was crazy. I'll tell you what, when I, I remember reading the Old Testament, and the first few times it was like, why are they the worst? And, and the, the longer I was saved, the more I realized, I'm kind of like this. Why am I the worst? That's the real question. Right? That, that there's no one who gets it right. There's no one who's truly righteous. And even when we, we know better, we don't, we don't do the right things. We've, we've all gone astray. We've all gone after our own way. And the beauty of God is that he's so gracious. He's so compassionate. He's so eager to forgive. He so wants to forgive. 
that for the sake of his son, he forgives the whole world. That's, that's why I'm here today. Not because I've done everything right. Not because I've got it all figured out. And I want to tell you, you have to understand this here. Even as Christians, we, we push against it. We come to God with confidence when we've been good, and we get kind of timid when we've been bad. And you see, we still think that we're earning it. We still think that we're working for it. And I'm telling you, I've been saved forever. I've grown up in the church. I've preached the gospel from a microphone and one-on-one. I've done it over and over and over again. I'm telling you, the gospel of grace, it still brings tears to my eyes. To think that I can come into the presence of God with clean hands and a pure heart. Not because I've done it, but because he's done it for me. The gospel's not just good commands, good laws, good instructions. It's good news. It's good news that Jesus did what I could never do. And and growth in the Christian life, yes, is about growing in holiness but it's not because you're earning anything. It's a growing in the knowledge of the grace of God. He's done what I could not do. And then my my standing before God, my inclusion in the people of God, it's because there was one. One. 